let's go ahead and get started. Chris is already leaving. This is a good start. The moment I begin. All right, let's pray. Father, you are a God of amazing grace. And you've displayed that grace by loving the unlovely, by loving the rebellious, by loving us as we were captive to our own sin and to the prince of this world, Satan. That you didn't just love us in in theory, but you demonstrated your love by doing battle, by waging war with our captor. You went to battle on the cross and you won. You defeated sin and you defeated Satan. You defeated death itself. And that is truly a demonstration of your amazing grace and love. And we certainly have done nothing to deserve such a radical sort of grace. Yet you've given it to us at no cost to us, yet great cost to yourself. So God, may we be your ambassadors, your chosen trophies of grace. Uh, may we have hearts that, that bleed for you, that bleed this gracious love that you have demonstrated to us. God, I pray that you would give us hearts like yours, hearts that would be willing to sacrifice everything that we have, all that we are, to go and share this gracious love with those who desperately need it. So tonight as we talk about how we can be a positive witness for your good news, God, may we have that contagious, infectious, gracious love, and may we go at at cost to ourselves and willingly go to share that good news with others. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week, we very quickly, if you were here, we very quickly covered the second half of Lesson 11, which was doing battle with Satan and him being a major obstacle or hurdle to our sanctification. Then the second half, we we discussed, actually that was Lesson 10, the second half we discussed Lesson 11, which was, Jim already has, Jim does not have one. In lesson 11, do you not have one either? No. So lesson 11, we talked about two things. We talked about how to make God-honoring decisions in a sinful world. And then we talked about how do we get along with those people who end up making different decisions than we do. Um, Because... Sometimes it's just money. You're going to make a decision that I might disagree with or might not be uh, obedience for me, but it could be something that you enjoy on, on your own. And so how do we relate to one another when we encounter each other making different decisions? Um, and I just don't feel comfortable with that, and you do. And so that's what we spent our, our, the majority of our time discussing. And so I gave you a fourfold grid. Authority, allegiance, ally, and ambassador. So 
what do my authorities think about this primarily and first and foremost God's word what does God's word have to say about this and he talks in direct command and indirect principle and normally we're not going to quibble over the direct commands but it's the indirect principles that get us hung up and that's where the, the level of controversy and debate tends to fall then how will this both demonstrate and affect my allegiance, my love for God, Matthew 22, and how will it affect my allies, those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ? How will it affect my neighbor? Again, Matthew 22, the second greatest commandment. Then lastly, how will this affect my testimony as God's ambassador? We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 or 5, something like that. Um, where it talks about us being God's ambassadors of, and, and and we have been gifted with this ministry of reconciliation to go and share. And then we talked about how to relate with those whom we disagree, and we talked about this kind of continuum, so to, some, so to speak, where we have on one half the non-participants and on the other half participants, and you have the poles, you have the extremes. On one end, on the non-participation side, you tend to have the legalists, and on the other side you have the libertine, in other words, they can do whatever the heck they want kind of thing. You know, they, there's, they have a license to do whatever they want to do. Um, and so what I encourage you to do and encourage myself to do is that we need to try to move, whether you feel the freedom to participate or not participate, that's your own decision. But on these debatable issues, and that's the key, on debatable issues, right? It's like, for instance... To beat a child, there's no debate, right? Like, that's wrong. But, like we discussed last week, drinking alcohol, that might, that is a debatable issue. So, we need to try to err on the side of caution and err in the mature side, right? So, we need to try to be mature. That means we recognize that this is a debatable issue, recognize that good men are going to disagree, and try to keep ourselves personally away from the legalist side or the libertine side. And move to the maturity, and that, and within that maturity, there's a lot of latitude, right? Because you could participate or not participate. But the governing thing throughout it all, and this comes directly from the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians ten that we looked at, is that his guiding principle is this: Let's seek the benefit of others, not myself. So I might have all the freedom in the world, but I am not going to use that freedom all willy-nilly, because that might not be beneficial, that might not be constructive. So therefore he says in chapter 10, verse 24, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. And so we concluded that we must be humble and we must have a deep love for each other. And if those two principles guide each and every one of us in our pursuit to live a life that is pleasing to God, and enjoying and living out the freedoms that we we all in our conscience feel like we have, I think that we have a good shot of getting along. One thing I failed to mention last week, I had wanted to, and just in my hustling to try to get through the lesson, I didn't say this. Chris ended up coming and talking to me afterwards, and we had a good conversation, and I brought it up to her, and I wish I would have brought it up to you. And it's this. If you are humble, and you love others in a deep and enduring way as scripture calls us to and 
the person that you rub shoulders with and you say, you know, I'm kind of concerned about that person. So if you're humble and you're loving and they're humble and they're loving, this is a really good recipe, right? Because I'm going to go to that person out of genuine concern and love and I'm going to communicate my concern on a debatable issue. And if they're humble and they're loving, they're going to receive that not as a slap on the wrist. They're not going to receive that in a proud, arrogant, defensive way. They're going to receive that, Lord willing, in the right way. Appreciating that that person can, was so, loves me so much that they, and they're concerned about me, that they're looking out for me, that they want, they're going to actually speak up and do a hard thing. And there's going to, a, a humility, Lord willing, would be there so that they could receive that potential criticism and concern and, and, and not freak out in defensiveness. Sadly, all these sorts of interactions, actually, most of us have been probably scared into never doing that because of bad times when we've done that. When the, the one time that we've re- gone out on a limb to try to do something in a humble and genuinely humble and loving way, and we've gone and done that, and then that person does not respond in a humble and loving way. We all get scared and, and don't do that, and that's sad. But if that context, if we are clothed with humility and love, I believe that it could be a real recipe to help each other. And we might still agree to disagree. But I walk away encouraged because someone's got my back. That's a good thing. And that is the context that we exist in and ought to operate in in the church. So, moving to lesson 12, if you flip over, this is the last lesson. We've made it through one semester. I've survived, you survived, and this is good. We'll see how many of you actually enjoyed it and profited from it. For those of you that come back next semester. (laughs) So, this is going to be a lesson that is much more interactive, much more dependent on you, I hope. At least that's the way I tried to design it. So... Our discussion today is to discover how to be a positive witness for God. How to be a positive witness for God. So first off, can you think of any texts that show our duty or that that, that, that call us to share the gospel with others? You don't have to be able to recite it. I think it's in Peter. What? Matthew 28. Okay. Ish. Ish. Yeah. So Matthew 28, that's the great commission. Uh, King James Version, go ye therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel to every creature, or something like that, right? And and it's go and make disciples, right? Yeah. Says Peter, be always ready to give an answer. Okay, so that's uh, Second Peter. Okay, First Peter three fifteen and sixteen. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an account or an answer to everyone who asks. So that's First Peter three fifteen and sixteen. The first verse that Jim mentioned was Matthew twenty eight. 19 through 20 or 18 through 20, depending on how much context you desire. Any others? We read one last week. 
Second Corinthians 5, right, where it talks about we've been given this ministry of reconciliation entrusted to us. Um, Paul writes that we know what it is to fear the Lord, verse 11. We try to persuade others, then all the way down near the end, verse 18, that God has given us, or God who is reconciling, who reconciled us to uh to himself through Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation we are therefore Christ's ambassadors that's 2 Corinthians 5 11 through 21 Colossians 4 2 through 6 this is kind of like a, Paul is, is offering or asking for a prayer request He says, and pray for us too, verse 3, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, that we may, verse 4, proclaim it clearly. If any of you did your homework, not asking for raised hands this week, because last week was pretty abysmal. What was the main text that was used? Give you a hint, it was in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt, and you are the you are the salt and the light. Matthew five, thirteen through sixteen says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we have, I mean, we've just cited four or five texts that give very clear exhortation to you and I, to all believers, that we must be willing to share the gospel. Right? Is that an undeniable fact of Scripture? Yes. The correct thing is to shake your head in an affirmative way. Yes. So then, why don't you do it? Why don't I do it? Why don't? We, what are some things that keep us from doing what God has exhorted us to do? Why don't we share the faith? Why don't we share the good news? Fear of what was on the Okay, fear of rejection. Ridicule. 
ridic- you said ridicule, or you even say persecution. Persecution. Sometimes you think ahead of time you're not really prepared. You know, can I, if I don't quote the verse with the reference, are they going to not believe me? You know, you're afraid you're not going to be adequate enough to fully present the gospel the right way. I'm scared of, like, I have one of my very good friends that I grew up with. His name's Bobby. And, uh, every year, he lives in California now. And he always, faithfully, when he comes back to visit his family for Christmas, he always, we always go to Sylvia's. You know where Sylvia's is. We grew up in Allen Park. So we grew up two blocks from Sylvia's. So every Christmas, he calls me. We go to Sylvia's for our annual lunch. And we always get the same thing, a slice of pizza, nachos, cheese on the side. And, and I'm sure that that is going to end our lives at least 10 to 15 years prematurely. But one of the things about Bobby is he is really, really intelligent. And he is very savvy and very winsome. And so I can sit there and talk to him, and like he is totally uh, bought into this like California liberal agenda. And... I mean, he can argue evolution, and he, you know, and and some, I think that even though I know what's right, I have the truth on my side. It still, you know, pins you back on your heels a little bit, and you're thinking, well, I can't answer that scientific objection because I don't. I mean, you know, how much have I studied evolution? And I was a science teacher. How do, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, we all sit there, and, and we probably all felt that. I, that's one of the things that keeps me here. Like, how can I answer every possible objection that I can't? But the good hope with Bobby is, Bobby's known our family for 35 years. <laughs> and when he comes back and gets together with Troy, he always comes to see my wife and I. Oh, yeah. uh, there's times he's come to dinner at our house when they Troy's not been time. around. Yeah, he always comes to dinner time. <laughs> he always comes to dinner time. <laughs> so, um, he's really smart. He, yeah. No, yeah. But, but, but even though Bobby is probably not a believer, um, I believe the influence that Troy's had and that we've had on him for this length of time, um, I think it's made some sort of impact on him. Maybe not, obviously, for trusting the truth yet, but if he would have wanted to, he could have rejected us a long time ago. But he hasn't. We still have this friendship and a relationship, which is there's still hope. So, I don't know. That that's one of my big ones is just not feeling competent to answer every objection. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that's right that we have to yeah. feel like we're capable. I mean, because seriously, doesn't that paralyze you into like one or just faith? I mean, I can't. I mean. You gotta be Superman. <laughs> Anyone else? How about losing just the friendship? I mean, that's yeah. scary too. I don't know if it's part of what you and Benny both said, but I don't Yeah. Yeah, I think, but I think rejection is a little bit different than losing a friendship. Losing a friendship is like the ultimate rejection, right? right? Because, like, I'm trying to build relationships with guys at work right now, and I don't. I don't feel like I've got that close enough relationship yet to, like, just sing them with, like, so what do you think about, you know, 
whatever, you know. And I pray that those opportunities, like just life circumstances, will uh, offer those opportunities where I can just naturally talk about God. Um, and I do, but I'm talking like in a more intense gospel explanation sort of way. But I do kind of fear that, like, uh, like what if it's not the right time? And then he's like, he's never going to go to lunch with me again, you know? So, I mean, I, I, I feel that. We don't. I know the times that I've prayed for open doors and opportunities, especially at work or with family. Um, God swings those doors wide open. <laughs> but if I'm not praying, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. So, uh, if I could maybe follow up with this kind of question, and I don't know if it's the best way to state it, but hopefully you can read through my muddy question. But what are some things that are necessary? from us in order to be a positive witness like what are the essential things that have to exist in order for us to be a positive witness she said it yeah, she said it meant to go about her testimony at work okay. if you got a rotten testimony and people don't think that you are really living what now you want to talk to them about it's useless it's you know it's like the little boy crying wolf you know you don't have a testimony uh, for Christ and people realize that you're different. If you're not any different than the rest of the people at work, then you're no different than them. If we're different than them, now we can have something. Well, why are you different? Oh, glad you asked. And that can open up all the doors in the world for talking with people about, uh, you know, the gospel. Because most of the time, I bet all of you that work, you can't proselytize at work. It's probably against your work code at some point in life. But if people ask you about your faith, you can tell them. You can't, hey, if you die tomorrow, where are you going to go? You can't do that, you know. But if they ask you, you can't. So, and they, if you have a testimony, they're more than likely to ask you. I think humility is huge. You know, I mean, I know of some believers who do nothing that would be detrimental to the gospel but they live their life not so humble and I think humility people see that as a genuine outlook and what a person is. And if you have humility, love's going to be showing us that humility. So there's a... Go ahead, sorry. An oversimplified thing. Very much oversimplified, but I've been in enough... I've been in some pretty raunchy situations at, in the workplace that this really does speak to the unbelievers, and that is um, our language. Um that that is one surefire way that non-believers recognize a believer is um, what comes out of their mouth by way of well, what doesn't come out of their mouth, I should say, um, by way of expletives. Yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not, I mean, yeah. I've had I was in a workplace situation where I worked among factory rats, quote unquote, and nothing but filth 
comes out of their mouths. But the minute, you know, just spending time with me and realizing I do not talk like that. Even the women. I, I'm not even excluding the women. Um, but when they realized that, I mean, I didn't, I never, I don't rebuke. I just don't engage. Yeah, they get it. They I mean, get because it. They, they get it. Because, yeah. like, Bobby, I mean. Absolutely. I didn't cuss growing up. And so when he's around me, like, I can tell now that he's not around me as much. Like, he's a little bit more loose. But even still, like, he always, like, kind of gives me the look and then kind of, like, yeah, I can always tell. <laughs> yeah, they back, they back up. And I'm not sitting there, I don't say anything to right. him, you know? Exactly. And they know. Because he's always respectful, you know? That he's not, like, going, way. you know, exactly. he's not going rated R on me or anything, but, you know. I actually had people approach me at that place of work and say, and I had one guy in private say, I know you're a Christian. And I, I never said anything. Yeah. And it's because of what we say or what we don't say. Yeah. It's really important. I'd have, I'd have people tell me when they would swear in front of me or around me. They say, oops, sorry. Yeah. Yep. Once they realize. Yeah. I think even in the way we witness could be right or wrong. I mean, I'll use myself as an example. I... I talked to someone where I work at one point, and in a different conversation later on, I tried to bring the gospel up. In a different conversation later on, I must have said it quite differently, and they looked at me and said, if you just said it that way the first time, it wouldn't have been so bad. But you sounded so arrogant. They made it sound like I sounded like I was this great guy in their all going to hell, you know, and I don't think that's the way it's meant to be. Your, uh, the article in your book, as I, when I prepare the lessons, I always start by looking at the objectives of the lesson, then I start writing my thoughts down, and then I go back to the book and I read, and what, for the first time, it had, it had it took 12 lessons, but for the first time... I started writing my thoughts. I got to the book. I'm like, oh, this guy's saying it like just like that. exactly what I was thinking in my mind, like the categories. He, and he said it. Not that I'm suggesting that all 11 lessons prior were stellar because of me or that I, I said it better than the author. But like the things that I were thinking to a T were right here. And he had a really unique and I thought helpful way to put it. So here's what he says. High potency plus close proximity plus clear presentation equal maximum impact, or we could say positive witness. So high potency, close proximity, clear presentation equals maximum impact. Or when he's talking about maximum impact, he's saying being a positive witness. That's the point of what he's saying. So high potency... Wow. All right. Siri is interjecting. So high potency, close proximity, clear presentation equals maximum impact. And just so you know where he's pulling this from, he's pulling this from the passage, Matthew 5, where he says, you are the salt and you are the light. So high potency. For salt to have any effect, whatever effect that must be, it must be potent, right? So salt 
has to be potent, and in order for it to affect something, it has to have proximity. It has to be close to what it's working on, right? If it's going to be a preserving thing, it's got to be close enough to the meat to actually do its preserving work. So that's where it gets the potency and proximity from the salt. And then the clear presentation, he drives that from the, the light, the use of the light analogy, that we must clearly portray the good news of the gospel. And we're going to dive into each of those. So his equation for being a positive witness is high potency plus close proximity plus clear presentation equals a positive witness or maximum impact. So what is high potency? It is having a strong enough concentration of Christ's influence in our lives that his power and presence are undeniable. Or maybe if I could say it this way, that we have a contagious Christ-likeness. That we have a contagious Christ-likeness. And that's, that's what each one of you that were talking when I asked, so how do we do this? What, what is necessary for us to be a positive witness? That's where all of your answers were, were zoning in on this idea of high potency, contagious Christ-likeness, that we must have a character that is, is like it's clearly seen, right? We, we are different because we have a character that is different. We are demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. Our lives are, are filled up or characterized by Christ. It's. I know I've alluded to Paul Tripp way too many times, but um, in his parenting series called Getting to the Heart of Parenting, one of the things that he says in the very, I want to say the first two lessons, is he says, parents, I think I've probably already told you this numerous times, but parents, you must, we must be passing on a biblical worldview to our kids. And one of the ways to do that is we must be passing in awe of God onto our kids. That's one of the first places to start, that we are in awe of God. The problem is is that we can't pass on awe of God to our kids if we are not first in awe of God. And he uses some really annoying illustrations, but he goes like, look at your fingertip. And then he starts going around with his fingertip way too many times. But like it in every in everything we can look and we can see awe of God. And if we're looking for it, if we have that awe, we can pass that on. And the same thing, we must be highly potent. We must have a contagious Christ-likeness. We must have something that we can pass on to our kids. We must have something in our character to pass on to others, unbelievers. So, how do we become highly potent? Or, how do we become... Um, contagious in our Christ likeness. We have joy in our lives that are in God. This is not a trip, by the way. Just last lesson of the semester. You know, first year, first lesson we all thought I was tricking Being with, being with one another. Body. 
different settings that we can be together, um, not only just being taught the word, but in um, like the ladies' Christmas social that's coming up, for example, or event breakfast, mm-hmm. things like that. Being just, uh, iron sharpening iron and being with one another and, you know, encouraging one another, especially, you know, like midweek, I mean, it's very easy to get discouraged in the world, and so it's nice to have with one another in the middle of the week and we talk God's word and be encouraged to go the rest of the week in the world. Okay. Yeah. The answer that the author gives, this is not a trick, <laughs> by practicing the age-old daily spiritual disciplines that have made believers salty for thousands of years. There's nothing fancy or high-tech about it. That's his answer. And then he goes on to say, our savor factor, in quotes, will be roughly proportionate to the extent to which we engage in the age-old spiritual disciplines. So how do we become Christ-like? Spiritual disciplines. We read our Bible, we pray every day, and you grow, grow, grow. Right? And we could add to that, you're part of a local church. So you're rubbing shoulders with other people who are reading their Bible, praying every day, and growing, growing, growing. And you all help each other grow, grow, grow. So we must be, first part of the equation, highly potent. We become highly potent by being devoted to the spiritual disciplines and not just being disciplined for the sake of being disciplined, although being disciplined is a really good thing and is necessary, but allowing the Word of God not to become a book of facts, but allowing the Word of God and acquiring those facts, but understanding those facts and applying those facts so that they we are they are being obeyed. And that, to Betty's point, will bring joy. So high potency, the second factor is close proximity. And what he's meaning there is we have to be close enough to unbelievers to share the gospel, right? I mean, no offense to street preachers and no offense to people that just walk up and down the street and pass off tracks. But I remember years and years ago, I think when we first had Caden, we went down to Greenville, South Carolina to visit my grandparents for Thanksgiving. I mean, I want to say it was like Caden's first Thanksgiving, right? We drove through the night Smartest decision we ever made. Caden slept the entire time. We get there. Like, a couple nights later, we go out to eat downtown Greenville, and there's this guy. I don't know where he's from, but he's standing on a box, like an egg cart or a milk cart or something, and he is preaching. And I, and, but like, it's like hellfire and brimstone. And it took everything, every ounce of my self control to not go and be like, dude, you need to shut up. Because the way he was this, there was a sense in which the way he was doing it, he was discrediting the gospel. But here, my, what I struggle with is that, okay, he's good, you know, he's doing a good thing, we'll give him that, right? But why am I going to listen to that dude? I have no relationship. And I'm not saying that that never works. I mean, Paul, it worked for Paul. (laughs) 
right? So Paul went in, set up shop in the middle of a major city, preached the gospel, and people were converted in droves. But in our context, we've got to be close enough. We got to have a relationship with these people, with unbelievers, and uh, in order to cultivate some sort of uh, trust and camaraderie where we can share the gospel. So. I put it this way, close proximity, I just say close connection. We gotta have a close connection with unbelievers. We gotta be friends with them. We gotta have a relationship. So my question then is this how do we balance for most of us have grown up in probably really conservative churches all our lives? How do we balance the tension between maintaining our necessary close proximity with unbelievers, right? We gotta be close, we gotta have relationship. But at the same time, not being negatively influenced by them. How do we do it? Because we have to do both, right? Yes? You have to be in the world. But not of, of the world. But how does that, how do, how do you do that? There's certain places that you don't go with them, certain places you will go with them, certain things you'll do and not do with them. And that's okay. Still be friends. And that separates you too. Right. Such a so would it be bad if I went to a bar with my friend? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not talking about like that kind of bar. I just mean like that, that would fall into this right here, but I don't. I don't know that that would be the greatest move to do. But uh, I mean, because Jesus, right? I mean, it was pretty radical what he was doing, right? I mean, he was dining with prostitutes and tax collectors. These were like the scum of the earth. I'm not suggesting I have the answer, by the way. So I think it's, I think it's an appearance thing too. I know we talked a little bit about that last week, but I do. Someone might not know why you're in there. And I know that you guys talked to me, you and Mallory talked a little bit about that last week. But I think that's part of it, too. I remember John MacArthur talking about going to a rated R movie because he may not be going into that rated R movie. There might be another one playing. But he was talking about, I'm not sure if that's what you're asking, but, like, the appearance of him as a pastor maybe possibly going to that movie and actually going somewhere else. Does that make sense? Yeah, but... I mean, that's kind of, that is exactly what um, we were talking about last week, and we just didn't have time to talk about it, all those details. But one of the interesting things about the lesson last week is that we often think about liberty in the sense of, and I don't want to dive all the way back into that, but we often talk about liberty in our, our Christian life as things to be enjoyed. And there's a certain aspect in which that's true. But the main point of the liberty that we have is for the purpose of, like getting into the world, mixing it up with unbelievers for the sake of evangelizing unbelievers. You know, I mean, that's the way Paul did it. Um, that that's the way he used his freedom was to rub shoulders with with you know the unbelievers. And that's where I want. I, I don't know. I don't have a right answer, but is it motive? We have to question we have, our motives. Yeah, so we have what to is be, our reasoning? Yeah, we have to be. Um, we have to be close enough in proximity to unbelievers so that we can share the gospel, that we can um, credibly uh, 
demonstrate Christ's likeness, that we can, um, I believe it says, Titus 2 talks about, that we would adorn the gospel or that we would make it attractive by the way we live. So we have to find that balance. We have to be close, but yet we have to be different. That doesn't mean we have to be freaks. I mean, in some senses we should be, right? Like, you know, what would people think if they call us a Jesus freak or something like that? We're probably way too old for most of you. Um, you know, but there's a distinction that has to be made. So how does that work? I mean, for me it's something like, um, you know, for all the years I played softball with the guys at work, um, every night after a game, they were going to Schaefer Bar uh, to drink after the game. And your mom and I would get in the car and we'd go home. And why don't you go to the bar? Oh, I don't drink. It's not a place that I want to hang out. And I don't think it hindered my testimony at all for me not to go into that bar and have a Coke and a burger or whatever in the bar. I don't think it... I think it would have been... Let's put this. I think it would have been more detrimental to my testimony for me to go in there than it was for me to drive on home and not, not associate them. I associate them with work eight hours a day or 12 hours a day. You know, I, I didn't need, I don't need to do the same things that they did. On the other hand, if I went to a baseball game with them and they sat there and got a beer while we're watching a baseball game together, if that's what they choose to do, fine. I don't have to choose to do that with the, you know, the choice I make, but I can still enjoy a baseball game with them or some other activity that we can mutually do together and I can be a friend to them, we can converse, and, you know, I can do that with my, my buddy Eric at work. I can go place with him and uh, eat lunch, and if he wants to get a beer, fine, you know. So uh, you know. how about, I, how about I, I separate it out of the debatable arena for a second and, and make the question not so much how do we walk that fine balance because this... Like, what we're talking about and diving into right now is exactly what we were talking about last week. That some of us are going to have to agree to disagree on how we're going to relate with unbelievers. And you're going to have to be okay with that. You're going to have to be okay with what I, the decision I make, and I'm going to have to be okay with what decision you make. Whether you think it's okay or not okay to go to a bar with a friend or whatever, you know, whatever you think. I guess, to bring it back to what it... What is absolutely necessary in order for us to be having such a close relationship with unbelievers? What is necessary for us to to not fall prey to falling into sin? Close walk with the Lord. Right. What? We have to have the close proximity. Right. Right. In order to have close proximity, we have to have what? The first thing, right? Yeah. We have to have high potency. We have to have contagious Christ-likeness. The more we're rooted in the spiritual disciplines, the more we're rooted in the world, or in, in the Word, not the world, the more we're rooted in the Word, the more stable our faith is, the more unshakable we are. But there's one other thing that I think is absolutely essential. Jot down Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13. Hebrews 3 12 through 13, it says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Verse 13, But encourage one another daily, 
as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is deceitful, right? There are going to be casualties in this battle that we must be engaged in to win the loss. So that means we've got to get in the trenches. We've got to get dirty, and we've got to be willing to share the gospel with people that don't look the exact same way we want them to look. We've got to be willing to get invested into their lives. But doing that puts us in, in, in a risky place, right? That means we've got to be entrenched ourselves in the spiritual disciplines, but we desperately need each other to keep us, right? That's why the context of, or, or the heart of hum, humility and love is so absolutely essential because if I'm in the trenches sharing the gospel, I need somebody to come alongside of me and say, hey, you know what? Keep doing it, but be careful. And I need to have the humility of heart to say, oh, thank you very much. Thank you for loving me. So, we need to have high potency, a contagious Christ-likeness. We need to have close proximity or close connection. And lastly, we need to have a clear presentation. We must be able to clearly communicate the central idea of the gospel. Does this mean that we have to be able to answer every objection? No. What were the five points I gave you earlier in the semester? I think this was lesson two. The five areas or, or hooks to hang the gospel message on. It starts with salvation begins with who? God. God. And then just think about biblical storyline. Then what do we see in Genesis 3? Uh, see man and sin. And then Genesis 3.15, the seed, is, the seed of the woman's promise, that's who? Jesus Christ. So we have God, man and sin, Jesus Christ. We have... What are we supposed to do? Repent. Our response, right? We're supposed to repent and believe. And then the promise is last, right? The promise is eternal life. Relationship with God. God, man and sin, Jesus, response and promise. Have those in your pocket, right? You have them on your hand. Know those five things. Know the story of the gospel. And be able to clearly articulate it. Take the, the outline that we discussed earlier in the semester and, and meditate on that. And think about it and, and fill it out. Think about your story, your testimony in relationship to that and how you can weave the, the, the clear presentation of the gospel into your story because your story is the, a great place to start. But we have to be able to clearly articulate the good news of the gospel. But let me encourage you and give you a resource to help you in this. We have the truth on our side. So no matter how many objections are thrown our way, no matter how many accusations are thrown our way, no matter how aggressive that um, obstinate unbeliever uh, becomes towards us and starts to cast doubt on our faith, we have the truth on our side. You might not be able to answer every objection, but you don't need to feel, nor do I need to feel, pressure to be able to answer every objection right then and there. 
like, what would be the harm in saying, you know what, that's a good question. I don't have the answer for that right now, but I'll get it to you in three days. That disarms them. It takes you off of your heels. But here's a resource that might be a potential benefit. It's called Questioning Evangelism. It's a book called Questioning Evangelism by a guy named Randy Newman. Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. And his last name, I believe, is spelled N-E-W-M-A-N-N. And the idea is not when it, it says questioning evangelism, he's not suggesting, like, should we be doing it? He's going and, and taking a look at how Jesus evangelized by uh, que- questioning people that came to him. And, and through questions, he drove them back to discover on their own the heart problem that they had. And, and when they discovered on their own, rather than being just blank, uh, flatly told, you're wrong, um, it's more it's much more powerful to discover that on your own. And so that's kind of the theory behind that book, but it's very good. It takes you through lots of scenarios that might help be helpful to you. It's been helpful to me as well. So Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. So let me just throw a couple curveballs at you. What do you think we would call high potency with low proximity? So you have someone that is seemingly really godly, super Christ-like, but no relationship with unbelievers, no contact with the outside world. Uh, okay, a mom. That would be a good example. Yeah, a hermit. A hermit. We call that isolation, right? I mean, a monk or a hermit. That's a good way to think about it. Amish. Okay, you're Amish. Yeah, you've you've uh, created your own cult, built the fences, and you are isolated. What about someone or? situation where there's low potency so there's low you're low on the Christ likeness scale but high proximity what do you think inevitably is going to happen in that scenario going to be viewed as a hypocrite you yes what did you say Jim same thing you're going to begin to identify right so you're going to be just you're going to just become just like the world right that would be the risk if there's if there's no grounding in the spiritual disciplines and in Christ's likeness, and there's high proximity, that you run a significant risk of just becoming like the unbelievers that you're trying to win. So basically you're using your freedom just as a tool to do what you want to do? Potentially, but they might not even recognize freedom. I mean, it's just... Well, if they, if you, t- if you go around telling them, that you're a believer and you back, you don't have the the Christ likeness to back it. Yeah, they're not gonna they're not gonna respect anything you have to say. Yeah. And then you might have a scenario, which I think this might be uh, where many of us are, Lord willing. Um. So there's high potency, or at least some measure of like potency or Christ likeness that's not like you know baby 
high proximity, so we have a measure, a good measure of relationship with unbelievers, but we're like, well, you know, we're just going to let our life do the talking. We're not going to say anything. Well, that doesn't work either, right? Because, I mean, there's admonition after admonition. you gotta t- you got to share. I mean, Romans 10, they must hear the message, right? Because that's just a deficient means of, evan- of, of being, being a positive witness for God. So, what does successful evangelism look like? Confidently sharing the good news and backing it up with your testimony. Okay. Without looking for results, all we can do is what Christ tells us to do. We're not actually looking for scores. So you would say that someone who preached a message that had, you know, 1,300 souls converted, you know, in the summer rally, that that that's not success in evangelism? Not necessarily. I mean, I can't tell you if it is or not, because I can't tell you if the, the decisions were genuine. Right. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, but it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Either. Yeah. So your your book, again, answered this very well. So what does successful evangelism look like? Look like? It says, taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit while leaving the results to God. So we do our responsible behavior and we trust God's sovereign hand in saving those who He chooses to save. So, how do we look in the mirror of this equation? Contagious Christ-likeness. Close connection. Clear communication. Are we Christ-likeness? Do we have close enough relationships that we can share the gospel? Or are we isolated? Or do we have the first two and then we're scared to share the message? We don't we can't competently defend our faith. Lord willing, we can evaluate that. We have plenty of opportunities probably over the next month or two months that we have the ability to be a positive witness for God. Um, two things. One, men, uh, when we're done in the gym, they're going to be setting up for the ladies thing on Friday night. And so we're going to need help. Second, um, my dad has to go home. How convenient. And second, what I did uh, last week, some of you had suggested that you wanted notes. So what I did is I kind of put like a Cliff's Notes version of all the lessons together. It's kind of long. It's six pages. It's three just side back and forth. And what it is, it's kind of one of my systematic professors told uh, mentioned in class before our first test. He said, definitions are the stuff of good theology. And I've never forgotten that. So I've given you lots of definitions this semester. So in most cases, um, the word, like conversion, is bold. And then I've defined the term. Um, you, you're more than welcome if you want. I can give you my teacher notes, um, which are going to be more full than this. 
but you'll just need to email me and then I can send you the PDF copy of that. Um, but if you would like a copy of this, I'll pass them out and it kind of gives an overview of what's discovery and so hopefully by the end you have 12 lessons of good foundational truths of the Christian life. So let's pray and then you guys can hightail it out. Father, thank you for the semester we've had to study. I pray that it would have been profitable, that it would have been, I know it was beneficial to me, and I pray that it would have been beneficial to each and every one of us, that it would encourage us to grow, encourage us to follow you, that it would commend, our study would have commended your word and you to us, so that we would follow you with unreserved trust. In your name we pray. Amen.